And when I came in, I created one. Anytime anybody needed any single piece of paper, 15, 20 seconds, I was able to produce it. But I was the only one with that ability because it was my filing system. (laughs) I understood how it worked. (laughs) I realized very quickly how to make myself indispensable. Also, information is power. And I got to read every single piece of paper that came through the LA Bureau. Every press release, I learned who all the players were on the West Coast. I learned what type of information was considered important and should be filed away and which ones should be tossed. I learned all these things. And because I had to also answer the phone when Michael Gould called, I knew who that was before passing it on to an editor. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new season of Start Right Here. We are the podcast that puts the spotlight on the career paths of BIPOC beauty professionals, entrepreneurs, and creatives, as well as issues related to beauty and inclusion impacting us in the industry, as well as impacting consumers. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope that conversations on this show help fuel your path to success. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about juggling many things and doing it well. And I'm really happy to welcome one of my esteemed industry colleagues that we, I would say, grew up in the industry together. And she's gone on to, as I said, juggle many things. We're going to talk about her career trajectory and moving from editorial to entrepreneurship and the many branches of entrepreneurship that she's tackled. I'm pleased to welcome Ken Van Dang, who is CEO of many things, and you're going to learn a lot about that today. Welcome, Kim. Thank you for having me. I have a confession. It's my first podcast ever. I'm a podcast virgin, so this is a huge day for me. Well, I'll be gentle. I'll definitely be gentle. Before we start talking about your career path, let's begin with some fun questions in our For the Love of Beauty section. What was the first beauty product you ever purchased? Well, it happened to have been a fragrance. It was Jean Nate. Do you remember? Yes. Okay. Body Splash. I must have been nine or 10. And there were the TV commercials on the air of the model in the shower pouring. <laughs> I assume she was in the shower pouring huge bottles of it just all over her body. And my younger sister and I begged our mom, like, please, please, we need this. And she took us to the drugstore. We got our bottle. And after an hour of being home, we said, we need more. And she said, what? And we were so gullible as children. We did what the model did in the TV commercial. (laughs) We used the whole bottle in one fell swoop, you know, while dancing in the shower, thinking (laughs) that's what you're supposed to do with this product. Oh my goodness, that is hilarious. That is hilarious. But for the listeners, hearing that her first purchase, her first memory is fragrance, is going to play significantly in our conversation. Well, I have a coda to this story. Years later, when I was beauty director at InStyle, I was invited to an Estee Lauder fragrance launch party. And I was seated next to Karen Corey, who 
at the time was the head of fine fragrance for the whole corporation. And I confessed to her that in my next life, I wanted to be a perfumer. And she said, what if there is no next life? And I thought, oh, well, then I'm really SOL, you know? (laughs) And she said, well, why not this life? And I explained that every time I got to meet a perfumer in the workplace, I would barricade the door to my office and I wouldn't let them leave until they told me all their secrets about how they became a perfumer. And the story was usually the same, which is they got accepted to this one and only accredited fine fragrance school in Versailles outside of Paris called Isipka. And after studying there, they went to Grasse and worked under some master perfumer as an intern for the next 10 years. And then that's how they became a perfumer. And I thought, okay, A, I'm really going to have to brush up on my rusty French. Second of all, they accept very few people into this one school in the world. (laughs) And third of all, I'm going to have to win the lottery because I'd have to be a fragrance slave for 10 years. (laughs) How was I going to get by? That's why I said my next life. And Karen said, I'm going to have somebody call you tomorrow. And next thing I know, this amazing man named Ron Winograd, who actually teaches the in-house perfumers at IFF in New York City, called and offered to give me private lessons on perfumery. And I was completely floored by this offer. I said, well, I have a full-time job how much time does this take? And you run a school. So do I sit in on your classes? When are they? (laughs) And he said, well, you're welcome to sit in anytime, but I understand you have a full-time job. And the other question I asked him was, and what does this cost? Because I don't want to waste your time. And he said, thank you for asking, but I'm quite well taken care of by IFF. I just want to pass my knowledge on to anybody who is passionate about perfume. And why don't you come in every Thursday on my lunch break and I will teach you. And when we sat down in person face to face for the first time, he asked me the same question. What was the first fragrance you ever wore? And I said, oh, we really don't have to talk about that. It was nothing. It was something from drugstore. I was a little embarrassed. And he said, no, tell me. And I said, it was Gina Tay. And he said, I created that. Oh, Wow, that is amazing. That is such a great story. Oh my God, that's amazing. What's the latest fragrance you tried? I own a store called Havens by KVD in Sag Harbor, New York, in the Hamptons. And it's a fragrance concept store. And pre COVID, and hopefully soon again, my husband and I, we travel the world and discover all of these gorgeous artisanal brands that are not already in North America and we import them and distribute them and I put them in my shop. But sometimes it's my customers who turn me onto brands. And the latest brand I brought in, it's called Strange Love. And it's actually based in New York City. And it is a brand of real oud fragrances. Each and every scent is a masterpiece with 
food from a different part of the world. And I'm personally in love with the latest scent I tried, which is called Fall Into Stars. And actually, it's very funny because that's a very cosmic name. And our brand is also quite cosmic. The last for the love of beauty question. What's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone? I don't believe in assigning a gender to fragrance. And I've spoken to many perfumer friends about this. The whole idea of is this a feminine or a masculine fragrance is just about marketing. (laughs) I always say, if you love it, then it's for you. If it speaks to you, then it's yours. There's no reason that women can't love wood fragrances and men can't rock a floral. In fact, I think it's much sexier when we cross those artificial boundaries and go for it. That's a great advice. Was the beauty industry a destination or a detour? What do you think? I would say neither. It was a happy accident. I don't know if uh, the camera's on or not, but this is what I look like all the time. (laughs) Even my own mother was like, you're a beauty editor? (laughs) No makeup, no hair. You usually just throw it back in a ponytail. For me, that adage of those who don't teach (laughs) rings very true. It's always been about fragrance for me. The common thread. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's from a pure passion standpoint. But from a career standpoint, I never thought of it as a career option. I think young people today are still figuring out that, oh, not only, you know, you can get a job as a beauty editor, but even that someone other than the celebrity name on the bottle actually created that fragrance. I think in America, it's such a young culture and the fragrance culture here is just at the tipping point. I think it's just starting to take off to happen. But for a very, very long time, I think people really, well, they probably never really thought about it. But if they were asked, who do you think made this perfume? They would say, oh, J-Lo made it or Britney Spears made it or Justin Bieber made it. Or uh, Mr. Giorgio Armani made it, not realizing that there's a whole industry, a whole team and a whole industry behind each fragrance, but it is even a career possibility. Right. Let's go back to getting that first internship. You told me that you were a magazine-aholic, though. You told me how you got that first internship. I want you to share how you came to WWD. My family and I lived about 45 minutes outside of Los Angeles proper, north of LA. And I got into the USC journalism school as a freshman. And it was the first time I ever lived away from home. And it was very exciting. And here comes the first summer between freshman and sophomore year. And I was desperate to stay in the city and desperate to get a job, an internship at a magazine, get my feet wet. And I literally had written to every editor-in-chief I could find on a masthead in every magazine in New York City. 
And one by one, rejection letters came back. Thank you so much for reaching out. Good luck in your future journalism career. We have no internships available this summer, but please do contact us again upon graduation. By the time I got the last one, I was quite depressed. And it was mid-afternoon. I shared an off-campus apartment with three other girls. And our apartment was sort of party central. Spontaneous parties would erupt (laughs) almost every night in our flat. And sometimes when you woke up in the morning, there would be a new hole in the wall that wasn't there the night before. And back then, W Magazine used to come in the format of like a broadsheet, like a color newspaper. And my roommate's mother, she was Southern, Charlotte, and her mother subscribed to W and she would get the hand-me-down copies and we kept it in a pile in the corner of the living room. And whenever I saw a new hole in the wall, I would go to the pile (laughs) And I would find the most beautiful new magazine spread or even a beautiful ad. And I would just cover the hole in the wall with this spread. And that was our wallpaper in the living room of our USC student housing apartment. And there I was. I'd gotten my last letter. I think it was from Art Cooper at GQ saying, thanks, but no thanks. And uh, I was alone because it was mid-afternoon and everyone was at class. And I was sort of staring into space wondering, what am I going to do this summer? I didn't want to go home. And suddenly I realized that I was staring at W Magazine. And I had not written to them yet because I did not think of them as a quote-unquote magazine because they were not a perfect bound publication. They were a newspaper. So I thought, oh my God, one more. So I ran to the pile, found the masthead, found that they had an LA office. And I realized by this point, going to New York was probably a long shot. But I don't care. I will work in the LA Bureau of any publication that will have me. (laughs) And (laughs) usually the LA offices were just advertising sales offices. And I thought, you know what? I don't care. I will work in the advertising department just to get my foot in the door to get that marquee onto my resume. So I called the number I could find in the paper and a girl answered. It was Fairchild Publications. I said, hi, is this advertising? And she said, no, this is editorial, but I can transfer you. And I was like, wait, hold on, hold on. You have editorial on the West Coast? And she said, we do. And I said, do you need any interns? And she said, actually, I'm the first intern they've ever had, but I'm leaving for the summer, so they're going to need to replace me. And I thought, oh, my God, who do I need to speak to? She booked an interview for me for the following week with Bureau Chief Steve Ginsburg. I wore my best suit and went to meet Steve, was so nervous. He sat me down and I don't even think the interview had actually started yet. He was just making small talk. And the first thing he said to me was, so Kim, what magazines do you read? Totally verklempt. I was like, uh, 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 and I'm sure he thought something is wrong (laughs) with this woman. (laughs) And the reason I hesitated was that 
I didn't know where to start. You know, should I go alphabetical? Should I go by category? And I finally, completely flustered, looked at him and I said, well, I read them all. Doesn't everybody? And he said, you got the job. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's how much of a magazine-aholic I was. So this was a amazing opportunity, especially in the LA Bureau. Yes. How did you make the most of the internship? Usually interns fetch coffee, make photocopies, do filing. So of course I did those things, but filing was probably the key thing because they didn't have a filing system. And when I came in, I created one. Anytime anybody needed any single piece of paper, 15, 20 seconds, I was able to produce it. But I was the only one with that ability because it was my filing system. (laughs) I understood how it worked. (laughs) I realized very quickly how to make myself indispensable. Also, information is power. And I got to read every single piece of paper that came through the LA Bureau. Every press release, I learned who all the players were on the West Coast. I learned what type of information was considered important and should be filed away and which ones should be tossed. I learned all these things. And because I had to also answer the phone when Michael Gould called, I knew who that was before passing it on to an editor. So it was cool. And I ended up staying on for the rest of my college years as an intern. And filing is one thing, but once I had started the filing system every day, there would only be five more pieces of paper to file. So (laughs) within the first five minutes of arriving at my internship, I would be done with my job for the day. And of course, I was curious and eager to learn more. And I had to figure out how do I get to do more? Now, I was the kid and there were four other people in the LA Bureau and they were the adults, the adults with lives, with family, with children, with significant others. And at 6 p.m., they like to go home to their other life, their real life. So I started volunteering. Remember, it's the LA Bureau. So we covered every movie premiere and the Oscars and all of that too. And I wanted to meet Brad Pitt. I wanted to meet Tom Cruise. (laughs) So, you know, I would go to the editor in charge of covering that evening's premiere and say, hey, do you want me to go get quotes for you? You know, would you like me to go cover the red carpet event? And they would look at me with gratitude and say, would you? That meant they would get the evening off. And I said, I'll do it for you. Okay. And not only did I get that experience of being a red carpet reporter, but I got tear sheets out of it. So that was one thing I did. And after being there for a few years, I graduated to not only doing red carpet interviews, but they started giving me the opportunity to do one-on-one interviews with directors, producers, actors, and I got to write real features for W Magazine and Women's Wear Daily. So here's the thing for our listeners. A tear sheet, let's explain, (laughs) is a clip of your writing. We would actually, in order to create a portfolio of our work, get a sheet. The magazines or newspapers would come also 
unbound and you could pull out the page in particular or cut out the page that your work was on. So that's what Kim's talking about in terms of tear sheet. <laughs> Blast from the past. We are so ancient. If anybody's watching this on screen, a few years ago, I did this motion in talking to some young people. I did this and then I went like this. <laughs> And I remember the girls looked at me and they're like, okay, we know what this is, but what the hell is that? Are you swatting a fly or something? (laughs) I was like, that's called using a typewriter. (laughs) Yes, it is funny. The other part of it is the thing that I didn't mention is I actually did work at Women's Wear Daily as a secretary in the sales department. Ah, That was my first job. Wow. Our paths crossed again. Yes. I think Fairchild is the birthplace of a lot of talent. I understand even Calvin Klein used to work there, you know, as a copy boy. Yeah. And had I not worked there, I would have never gotten a job at L because my boss went to L. Right. And helped me get to L. Yeah. For those who don't know, Women's Wear Daily is the paper record for the fashion and beauty industry in the way the Wall Street Journal is that for the financial and business industry. And I worked there on the beauty desk under Pete Bourne. And it was amazing because he did not consider other trade papers our competition. Our competitor was the Wall Street Journal. And that was the bar that he held us to. And we had to break stories before the journal because obviously this was our industry, the beauty industry. Yeah, so you were a reporter there after graduation. Yes, so after free slave labor for four years, <laughs> all very enjoyable, I got a job at the Orange County Register, my first real newspaper job. And that was quite a learning curve and a culture shock for me. And I actually got fired very shortly after arriving there because my job was to cover city council meetings in a small bedroom community in Orange County. I didn't really know how to cover city council meetings. No one trained me and I was just sort of thrown out there to do this. And no one even taught me how to use the new computer system that had just arrived. Computers had just come onto the scene. (laughs) So it was sort of stumbling around in the dark, and the editors really felt that this was not going to work out. And I was called into a room where they were going to let me go. It's the first and only time I've ever burst into tears in a career environment. I just let it out. I said, listen, no one's trained me on either the computer nor the job itself. And you knew what my resume was coming in. I covered fashion shows. (laughs) I covered movie premieres and this is not fair. But the real reason I was very stressed out is that the community of Little Saigon is in Orange County and I had moved home to save money after college to pay off my college loans. My parents were so proud of me and they had told everybody in the community that our daughter writes for the Orange County Register now. And I just felt like I would bring so much shame and embarrassment on the family if I got fired. (laughs) So I talked really fast and earnestly, and they actually 
took my comments to heart and came back and said to me, you know what, you are absolutely right. We just threw you in there. We never trained you. So you get to leave the community news pod, which was on a whole nother floor, and come down to the main newsroom. And they actually assigned a top news editor mentor me. And I got to sit next to her and she taught me how to be a hard news reporter. You know, she gave me daily exercises and I'm so grateful for that opportunity. And if anybody young in their career is listening, here's a very important takeaway. You don't ask, you don't get, you have to ask. And I asked, I could have tucked my tail and left and That would have been it. But I fought to stay on. I wanted to learn. I wanted to be a good reporter. And Karen, within the six months that I did stay on after that, she taught me so much. She taught me how to think like a reporter, how to write as a reporter. And in that time, I had, I think it was six front page news stories above the fold line. Your time at Women's Wear, what? skills did you learn there that set you up for success? Honestly, I learned everything that was to learn out of that building. (laughs) Because again, I asked, I wanted to go on my first fashion shoot. I had never done that before. That seemed so foreign and glamorous to me. So I went up to the fashion editor, Maureen, at the time. And I said, Maureen, would you like me to accompany you on your next fashion shoot? I can steam all the clothing for you. You always have to figure out how you could be useful because you want the answer to be yes. And that was very appealing to her to have an assistant come along and steam all the clothes. So sure, I was stuck in the motorhome. It was an on-location shoot. I was stuck in the motorhome for nearly two, three hours steaming clothing But at some point, all the garments had been steamed, and I was finally able to leave the motorhome and stand on the side and watch a real live fashion shoot in action. And I remember it was a French photographer. Pierre Gilles was his name, and he was there sort of egging on the models like, turn left, turn right, chin down, give it to me, you know? (laughs) And I remember just kind of laughing and chuckling to myself and watching this scene unfold. And he looked over at me and he was like, Kim, what are you laughing at? You think you can do this job? You think it's so easy? You know? (laughs) And he said, tell me, I have one frame left. Again, this is when photographers used to use film. He said, I have one frame left. Where should I take this last picture? on the roll. And I said, Gio, you should do it over there with the model against that large boulder with the palm tree. And he laughed at me and he said, Kim, that is so cliche to shoot in Los Angeles with the palm tree, but you know what? I do it for you. Well, he had asked, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> Guess what ended up being on the cover of Women's Wear Daily? Wow. <laughs> Why? Because of the freaking palm tree. Fairchild had paid for an on-location photo shoot. They wanted to see that it was in California. Any other generic background did not give them the bang for the buck. 
So from then on, he would often ask my opinion on where to take his next shot. <laughs> and I eventually ended up directing my own photo shoots. Again, you don't ask, you don't get. How did you end up in New York? Ah, there was a publication called Sports Style, which Fairchild also published. And it was sort of the early days of extreme sports. I mean, the X Games had just been invented. So this magazine was going to be the nexus between the fashion industry and the sports world. And technical sportswear had sort of just been invented as well. Ralph Lauren had just launched RLX. And I was offered the opportunity to go be the fashion editor at Sports Style. This was my dream come true to come to New York. But when I arrived, the editor who had brought me in was actually leaving his job and a new editor was put in his place. And he and I did not see eye to eye on the direction the publication had to go in. And he made it rather miserable for me. He limited me to two pages a month. It was sort of tough, but all my real friends were on the other side of the newsroom <laughs> at Women's Wear Daily and at W. And they used to come over and say, what are you doing on this side? Why are you not back writing for Women's Wear and W? Dana Wood, who is a dear friend of mine still today, she was, Dane. yes, she was the beauty editor for W Magazine at the time. And she reached out to me one day. It was a Friday night. We had gone out for drinks after work. And she said, a beauty job has just opened in the beauty pod at Women's Wear Daily. And this is Pete Bourne's home phone number. And you need to call him this weekend and tell him you want to join his team. And I was terrified. I thought, I'm not going to call this man at home on his weekend. <laughs> but she insisted. And I did. And I said, hi, Pete, this is Kim Van Dang. Dana Wood forced me to call you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how I ended up in beauty because I was sort of miserable in sportswear. That's interesting. Working on a trade publication, you did hard news. Yes. Work on trade publication. Then you went to consumer magazines. Tell me about transitioning. What is it like to transition? It was interesting. I was used to filing stories daily, breaking news for a trade paper. And I thought, what am I going to do in consumer land? You know, this is going to be a cakewalk. Well, it wasn't. I actually had two job offers coming out of women's wear. And actually, I was not even coming out of women's wear. I felt like I had just arrived at the beauty desk when two offers came in. One was from a hot new publication called InStyle Magazine, founded by Martha Nelson. And the other was the Grand Dame of magazines, Good Housekeeping, which had been around for 100 years at that point, helmed by Ellen Levine. These were both icons in the industry and certainly my personal heroes. I knew I could learn from both women. And the question was, where was I going to go? And of course, everybody thought I was going to go to InStyle. And in fact, I went to Good Housekeeping. Reason being, Martha Nelson, she's such an awesome woman and so candid. During my first interview with her, she 
just came out right and said, listen, I'm sure you have good ideas, <laughs> but we have finally crafted a formula for in-style beauty. And I just need a strong lieutenant to come in and run with my formula and allow me to sleep at night because I've got many other fires to put out in other sections of the magazine. Meanwhile, I went to meet with Ellen at Good Housekeeping and she said, help, it's the year 2000 and we're still stuck in the 1950s and I want you to come in and blow everything up and reinvent Good Housekeeping Beauty. And that to me was just so much more exciting of a prospect. The difficult part is that it's not a fashion or beauty publication. There's a lot of self-help, a lot of advice columns, and a lot of food, a lot of recipes, beautiful food spreads, <laughs> and sometimes only one page for beauty coverage a month. And I had an assistant. We would sit around and try to pack this one or two page a month with as much excitement as possible. And yeah, I remember running through headline ideas with her. And at one point she looked at me and she said, why are we hitting our heads against the wall? Because you know that none of this is going to pass. They like very dry, straightforward headlines. And I said, why? Because at some point, one of them is going to just slip through. And I have to say that that was a joy, a small joy of mine in the editorial world was to be able to write fun, fantastic, and informative headlines. For instance, one of my favorites was actually a subject you and I touched on earlier today before the camera started rolling. We were talking about eyebrows and how few I have. <laughs> and the concept of this tiny little one paragraph story I was doing was on how you should be very careful when plucking your eyebrows because sometimes the hairs do not grow back. The headline I came up with was, don't push your pluck. <laughs> I'm just going to share a few more. One headline that I never wrote that someone else wrote, but had always inspired me was a story about how to tie your scarf in 5,000 different ways. And the headline was, Sari, S-A-R-I, Sarong Number, S-A-R-O-N-G, which I loved. Sari, Sarong Number. Oh my God, that is genius. So I tried to do that in my career. And there was a story I did for InStyle where we had to do a story about quick change hairstyles. And at InStyle, we did not work with models. We worked with actresses. So Alyssa Milano was the actress who starred in my story about quick change hairstyles. And at the time, she was the star of a show. I think it was called, is it Charmed? It was a show about... Um, Three sisters and a witches. Yes, witches. Okay. So the headline I came up with was the hair switch project. And another one was doing stories on bridal hair. And it was about copying bridal hairstyles from great movies. Again, an in-style type story. I called that story Bride's Heads Revisited. 
That's funny. So more interesting to me, like I love the play on words on some of these. I know that the sorry, sarong, whatever, that would not fly these days in terms of cultural appropriation. Let's just be clear. <laughs> so that no listener writes me. We know that that would not fly. But this was a different time. Does it make it right? But it's a different time. But what's funny is that you had these two offers and then you ended up working at both of the publications. How did you get to InStyle? After Good House. I digressed when talking about headlines. You had asked me about the switch from writing for a paper and going to a consumer book. Like I said, it was a tough transition, especially because I did not get that many pages. But again, that's when I got inventive. <laughs> not just with the headlines, but also I was stuck in an elevator one day with a beautiful, very tall woman with silver hair. And I looked at her. This was in the Hearst building. And I said, are you Heloise? And she said, why, yes, I am. And she was this tall, cool drink of a Texan. And she was one of the advice columnists for Good Housekeeping magazine. And I said, I'm about to say something that sounds like a diss, but it's actually a compliment. And she said, okay, hit me. And I said, you are so much more beautiful in person than in your headshot for your column. You know, that's a very old picture. You should allow me to get you hair and makeup and take a new headshot for your page. And she said, I would love that. So I went to Ellen Levine, my editor, and I said, what if we did a makeover story on Heloise? And Ellen said, wait, what about all the other columnists? for this magazine. Maybe they all need new pictures. Why don't you make a whole feature out of it? So I ended up getting to make over not only Heloise, but Dr. Joyce Brothers and Peggy Post, who was the etiquette columnist. Funny thing is, these three women had actually never spent time together. So I got them all on the set of one shoot, and I was able to parlay that into like a six-page spread. What I learned was, you know, I was given such little real estate. How did I get more? I had to invade other sections of the magazine. It was literally pushing a boulder up a hill for a year. But then the phone did ring again, and Martha Nelson did want to see me again. And when I did sit down with her, of course, I came to this second interview armed with all of my tear sheets from Good Housekeeping. And when I whipped out my portfolio, she said, oh, no, 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 you can put that away. You don't need to pull that out. I've been following your progress and congratulations. You've done a great job at Good Housekeeping. And I said, thank you. And I want to say congratulations to you because InStyle Magazine has blown up. It is the book, the hot book. She said, well, thank you. But that's why I called you in because remember that formula I had for InStyle Beauty. I said, of course. She said, well, it's been so successful that everybody has knocked it off. And I am now finally ready to hear your ideas for what to do with InStyle Beauty. We needed to evolve. And it was so amazing because I was able to go in with my own mandate on how to do my pages. And that is definitely fortuitous, but just in hindsight, maybe no one had ever turned down Martha Nelson before. I don't know. <laughs> but also it was being true to myself, to my convictions. 
And I think that that always pays off. Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. So you had like one page and then you fought for other pages that could have, but in style, you had many pages. I would have 30, 40, 50 pages sometimes because those were the golden years in print publishing. And how did you make that adjustment to going from (laughs) almost nothing (laughs) to so much, so many pages to fill? Well, I had a team and it was fun. Eleni Gage was the beauty editor under me and I had an assistant and we were also able to bring in amazing freelancers when we needed. Before she became beauty director at Vogue, Sarah Brown was one of my top freelancers. That's amazing. Yeah. And I'm never opposed to long hours and hard work. I enjoy it because I am in the profession that I'm passionate about. Also, again, I came from daily news, so deadlines, not a problem. And it was a very tight shift the way it was run. It was daily deadlines, even if it was a monthly magazine. Right. How far into your role at InStyle did you start your perfume studies? I was at InStyle for close to seven years and must have been sort of the midpoint, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something like that. I want to talk about InStyle for a second because it was really interesting and an industry game changer. As I mentioned before, InStyle did not use models. They used actresses and actors in their pages. And my job was to convince actresses to be on my pages. And at first it was like pulling teeth because they did not trust in style to show them in the best light. And I had to prove this by hiring certainly the top photographers, the top hair stylists, the top makeup artists, and all of my skill sets as a creative editor from Women's Wear came into play here because I directed all my photo shoots. That's another difference between trade papers and consumer books. Consumer books have sittings editors that produce these fabulous photo shoots and they had creative directors and people who just started their careers in consumer fashion publications relied on all of these skilled people to supply them with beautiful images for their stories. I went on all of my own photo shoots and art directed them. And I remember one day saying to my direct report, Jeannie, any stories you need me to edit, can you give it to me before Wednesday? Because this Thursday and Friday, I'm out on a shoot. I'm not going to be in the office. And she said, okay. And then two seconds later, she said, wait, do you have to be on set on your shoot? Because typically editors were not. They wrote the stories or they edited the stories and they would edit the film once it came back, but they were not on set. And that was such a good question she posed. And I thought, do I have to be on the set? And I looked back at her. I said, yes, I do. And she said, okay, so I'll give you everything before Wednesday. And again, you don't ask, you don't get. But I felt it was very important for me to be on set because this was my story. And how I illustrated it through photography was also going to be important. And I was very hands-on, but that was my training as well. And I think that in terms of 
whether or not a beauty director, editor goes on a shoot is really how the publication is run. Like every place I've ever worked, big staff, small staff, you had to be there. And I remember not going on a shoot once and then the pictures came in and the editor-in-chief called me and said, Houston, we have a problem. You have to always be there. Because they'd say, oh, we don't want the whole team there. Somebody has to be in the office, blah, blah, blah. But since my foundational job was at L, it was visual first. Like, I don't think I started writing till I was there for eight years. So I was there four years. I only did shoots. I went on the shoots. I did the market. I did all that other stuff because it was visually driven. I was always on set. Sometimes for the fashion department, too. They would say, okay, we need you to go. One time I even went on a trip with French L to the Bahamas for like, three weeks or something. The point you make about being multi-skilled kind of plays into your having comfort with wearing many hats. And it kind of makes sense now in terms of you as an entrepreneur. Hi, folks. My guest, Kim Van Dang, has worn so many hats in her career that we had to actually make this a two-part episode. So be sure to turn into part two of my chat with Kim Van Dang. That's our show for today. If you have questions about where to start in your beauty career, drop us a line at hello at beautybizcamp.com. Remember, there are many roads to success, but each of them requires you to start. So take that step forward today. See you next time.